Good morning, beloved. Uh, fatherhood is special. Uh, the, I knew it was special um, the moment that my son was born, but uh, there was a moment when I learned just how special it is when Leland was a baby and um, I'm sitting on the couch feeding him with the milk and the bottle and all this deal and um, he gets a weird look on his face and so I pull the bottle back and I'm just kind of looking at him curiously and he sneezes with no warning straight into my face, into my open mouth and um, it was just everything you can imagine. But what concerned me most was I realized, like, I'm no longer human because I'm not throwing up in this moment. Uh, just fatherhood is special for sure. Uh, but one of my favorite things that I do with my son now that makes fatherhood special is um, he has a, a time at night where I don't know how this became a thing, but we have what's called the fun fun time. And the last thing that happens, we say our prayers and everything. He has his reading and all this stuff, and then and it's time for the fun fun. As mommy leaves the room, I have to give him a dad joke. And then he gives me a dad joke, and his dad jokes just tell me, again, how special fatherhood is because I somehow find the patience to help a human being learn what is funny and what is not funny. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's just, there's no denying there's something special about having a father, being a father. And, and in that, I want to acknowledge that not all of us have good fathers. Um, there, there's a lot of pain for many of us when it comes to thinking about our father or even ourselves as fathers. There's so much of a sense of failure and, and that goes on both sides of that. So um, I want to acknowledge that, but even in acknowledging that, the reason that is so painful is because we know we long for a good father, for a father who is good, a father who will protect us with his strength, a father that will provide for us with his skills and his passion, a father that will push us and equip us to know how to navigate this life. We want a father like that, that will be a good father. And so I want us to be thinking about that idea. Um, don't worry, we're not gonna sing that song because I just can't take it. Um, but uh, we're, we need to really wrestle through like what does it look like to have a good father? And so we're gonna be in Galatians chapter three if you wanna make your copy of scripture ready. Galatians chapter three, picking up towards the end of that chapter. Um, and as we go there, um, quick review, we are in the, the book of Galatians. This is a letter that Paul wrote a couple thousand years ago to churches that he helped plant around modern day Turkey and that time known as the region of Galatia. And so these churches in Galatia are encountering a problem where there are people coming in and saying like, you know the gospel, the gospel is that Jesus died after living a sinless life and then he rose again victorious over sin and death itself to offer us salvation, to be our salvation. And so people are creeping in and saying, yes, that's true. But if you really want to be the people of God, if you really want salvation, that must be true for you. Plus, you need to keep some of the law. And so you need to be circumcised as this sign of becoming an ethnic Jew, or you need to keep the Sabbath, or you need to keep these feasts and festivals. They're trying to add the law to the gospel. And so in today's vernacular, we're not so concerned about adding some of these laws, but we're absolutely falling into the same pitfall of thinking, somehow, I need to earn my way to salvation, that somehow I'm gonna gain God's favor that comes freely in grace by merit, that I must do something to earn my right standing before God. My obedience, my performance, whatever it is, and isn't that what every religion accepting Christianity is about, is you doing something to come into a right position. And yet the Christian faith, the gospel, the true gospel is you don't ever earn that. 
You receive that, and out of the favor of God, you live, not for the favor of God. And so Paul is trying to defend this gospel. Don't add things to it. Don't distort it. You're free. And he says, like, that's honestly the point of the law was not so that you could earn your way, like learning what is good and what is wrong and all that stuff. It's actually just meant to show you that you need a salvation outside of yourself. And so we covered that last week, and now we're going to pick up. But to pick up where we're going to start today, and we're actually going to go back one verse into what we covered last week. We have to start with something that's included in the final statement of last week's text in verse 26 so that we can pick up with the theme of today. So verse 26 of chapter 3 says, For through faith... You were all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? For through faith, you are all sons of God. So who, who is the all referring to there? All who have faith. If you have faith, then you all are sons of God in Christ Jesus. We are sons. The rest of what we're going to cover today is going to explore this. So if you're the type A personality, you need to know kind of the structure for this. Um, The text we're going to cover going from verse 27 of chapter 3 to verse 7 of chapter 4 is all going to be kind of in two buckets here. So the way this is going to be broke down, 327 through 29, so the end of chapter 3, is exploring the implications of this sonship for us together. So collectively, what does it mean for us to be sons of God? And then the start of chapter four, verses one through seven, is gonna further explore the implications of what it is to be a son of God for us personally. And so we'll start with us collectively, and then we'll move inward to us individually. What does this mean to be sons of God? So 27, here we go. It says, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There's a lot packed into that statement. Those of you who are baptized into Christ are clothed with Christ. What does it mean to be clothed with Christ? Well, first, he's making it analogous. So baptized into Christ, well, baptism is this public expression of this It's an outward expression of an inward reality that I identify with Jesus who died. And so we go under the water like Jesus died and was buried and we come out of the water identifying with him and his resurrection that I too have new life in Christ. So I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He just said that a chapter earlier. And so this is our expression of that to the world. This is what I believe. This is who I am, that I'm with Christ and his death, his resurrection. Our baptism expresses that. It's a public sign of faith in Christ. Much like clothes, right? Is that not what clothes do? They express something outwardly. Yes, they have this functional purpose of they keep me warm and protected from things, scratch me all up or whatever, that protect me from the harsh sun, all these other things. But think about what clothes do. If you want to understand what it means to be baptized into Christ and be clothed with Christ, what do clothes do? They express identity. Every one of us in here, what you chose to wear is in some way expressing something about your identity. In the same way, when we are clothed with Christ, when we're baptized with Christ, in Christ, we are expressing something of who we are. Our clothes say something, and of course there will be deviances here, but they say something about who we are. We can think in terms of our affluence, the brand of clothing that you wear. What it says on it, what logo is on there, what it's going to say is something about your level of wealth or prestige in the social hierarchy of our society. It's going to say something about gender, that generally there are different clothes for male or female. So it's an expression of that. It's an expression of cultural belonging, whether that's some 
subculture, like a sports team that I identify with this, like I support this, or it's a brand that specifically says I'm part of this lifestyle, whatever it is, there's some cultural belonging being expressed through the clothes that we wear. Clothes also speak to our dependence and intimacy with Christ. The clothes cover us, and particularly they cover the most intimate parts of us. That is what we clothe the most. And so there's something beautiful about that. I shared with our men's group, uh, it's been a couple of months, but um, when I was in Hawaii with my wife for our anniversary trip, uh, we, we were hiking around an area and we got kind of far away from the, the beaten path, so to speak, and there was this little cave in the side of a big, big rock, and I saw something pink. I thought, that's weird, like I wanna see what's in there. And so I walk up there and someone left their undergarments in there. And it reminded me of where I was just a couple days around this in Jeremiah when God tells Jeremiah to go buy some new underwear. He's like, oh, that's great. Like, we know the new, new underwear feeling. Like, this is wonderful. And then he's like, just wear them. Keep wearing them. He's like, okay. Like, no. After a couple of days, he's like, no, I'd really like to wash these. He's like, no, 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 just keep wearing them. And so after a while, he's been wearing them. It's like, this is just disgusting. Like, I don't want to wear. They're no longer new. They need to be washed and all this stuff. And so they've gotten disgusting at this point. But they're, they're on his most intimate area. And then God tells him, now I want you to go bury them down by the river. This is so weird. Okay. He goes and he buries them down by the river. Thank God I don't have to wear them. Like, thank you, literally God, that I don't have to keep wearing those nasty underwear. And then he leaves. And after a long period of time, God sends him back to the river, dig it up. This is getting weird again. He gets them out and they're worthless. And God's like, that's the point. That's what my people have become to me. Like what should be so intimate to me, so close to me, has become worthless. And so it reminds us, as we wear clothes, and we're to be clothed with Christ, that we're to be so close to him, to be of use, to be there with him, to enjoy nearness of God, our dependence on him, our intimacy with him. And, you know, if you, if you dress like somebody, then typically you want to act like that person, or you aspire to be like that. Uh, I've told you the joke, I had a colleague when I was a high school teacher who would always dress really fancy at the high school, and he always said, mama told me to dress for the job you want, not the job you've got. Like, All right. And so the idea, like why when I was a coach, you have your players dress nice on game day because they tend to get in less trouble when they're dressed nicer. And so there's a better chance that they could actually play the game if they didn't get in trouble that day. Because when we dress like someone, we tend to in- imitate them, not intimidate them. We don't intimidate Jesus. Let's be clear on that. We imitate them. And so when we are clothed with Christ, we're reminded, I'm supposed to actually act like him. I should live like he lived. And then lastly, and possibly the most profound, is a reminder to us of his provision of righteousness. And you think back to the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve succumb to the temptation, the deceiver, the serpent comes in and tells them, eat, you'll be like God. Like, that sounds awesome, I wanna be my own God. And so they eat from the forbidden fruit. And what happens? They become aware of their nakedness and they're ashamed. And so knowing their brokenness, knowing that this is not right, you should not see me in my shame. I want to hide my shame. I want to make myself right again. That is at the heart of self-righteousness. I will make myself right. And so they sew together some fig leaves. And I can just imagine God kind of like laughing at it. Like, yeah, it's not gonna work. And what does God do? He makes them clothing. But he makes them clothing from animal hide. As a beautiful, just preview of the gospel. 
that if you want to have righteousness, if you want your shame to be covered, blood must be shed. There's someone will die to cover your nakedness. And so if we are clothed with Christ, we are clothed with his righteousness, that his blood was shed, there was a sacrifice to truly cover our shame. So we are clothed with him. And then 28. Remember, we're still in this area that is us together. We are speaking collectively here. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most beautiful calls to unity in all of the scriptures. Look, in Christ, all are one. We are all now one. And he's saying this like systematically. He's breaking it down. You have every major barrier between people groups throughout human history is now broken. He says, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no more cultural breakdown. There is no more cultural division. No Jew, no Greek. There is no slave or free. Within that culture, there is no class division. There's no more male and female. There is no more gender division. Saying all are one in Christ. And what this is saying, like he is not saying that we have just kind of devoid the world of all diversity. In fact, scripture always, always celebrates diversity. That in the end, in the redemption, the restoration of all things, there's still this lamb slain who's being worshiped by every tribe and tongue. There's still this remarkable diversity in heaven, in the throne room, where all of us still in some way show the diversity of God's creation that is beautiful. So he's not saying that we pretend like everyone's just the same. He's saying, no, it's not the diversity is gone, it's the division that's gone that we still have beautiful God-given roles and places in this diverse world and creation. And yet the things that divide us no longer ought to divide us. We are all one in Christ. The diversity is to be celebrated, not quashed. But just know division has no place anymore. There is great equality in Christ, yet even with distinct varied roles. And it continues on, verse 29 says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. That we, we are his seed. And we've already established, and he's already made the argument, in sin, under the law, what, what were you? You were a slave. You were a slave under the law. In your sin, you were enslaved in that. And so out of that slavery, now you see this remarkable shift. You're no longer a slave. If you were in Christ, then what are you? You're an heir. You have an inheritance to come. You are an heir of Christ. That means that you are now a son. You're a son. This shows if we're now heirs, we belong to him. This is incredible to think that we have made this shift from being slaves under the law in sin to now free sons of God with an inheritance to come. And now we continue on into the fourth chapter. um, And... No, just side note here, if that gets confusing, like why doesn't he just like stop on clean breaks between chapters? Um, the, the chapter headings and the verse headings are not inspired by God. And so often many theologians will think they should actually fall in different places, um, paragraph divisions and all that stuff. And so what we want to do, um, I actually do this with some of our leaders sometimes, is, is we'll, we'll take the entire text and take out any of the paragraph breaks and things like that. This is a great exercise for you to try. And then just see like, well, where does the thought actually change? and try to get back to where, where was that, that flow of thought. And so we're continuing on, but we're still in the same idea here. So chapter four, verse one, is actually still part of this paragraph. 
And so verse one, it says, now I say that as long as the heir, the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. Huh. What is he saying? He's like, hey guys, look, we've made this beautiful shift. We're no longer slaves to the law and under sin enslaved. We're actually sons. We're, we're going to have an inheritance. We're heirs. We're heirs of the creator, the king of kings. We're his children. We are sons. And so now he's saying, but get this. Here's an illustration. Heirs are children, and children are not unlike slaves. They're actually like slaves in many ways. A child is still under a guardian. You remember this argument he's already made. You're under this guardian, and so your freedom is not really there. There are restrictions still in place. And so the child is similar to the slave in that neither are truly free. There are restrictions over you, but what happens with children? They grow up, and they become free. And he's saying, you're not a slave. You were a child, but you're to grow up into freedom. And so he's speaking about this in a historic term. So uh, I want us to see this. The way that he's speaking about this idea of you're, yes, like a slave or like a child, but then you're growing up, he's speaking about this in historic terms in a collective sense and in a personal sense. And so in the collective sense, we can see that he's saying that we're children not unlike slaves and that we were all under the law of Moses in historic terms. The people of God were for a long time under the law of Moses. And so enslaved to that, You're like a child or a slave. You're restricted by that. So you can think of this in historic collective terms or you can think about this in a personal sense. That all of us were enslaved to our sins before being rescued by Jesus. So either way you look at this, there's this reality that even if you are an heir, there was a point at which you were like a slave. And so the emphasis is on that is no longer the case. And so what has changed that? Children grow up, they gain freedom. How did this happen for us? How did we do this? Because we became adopted children of God. We became sons. And this happens legally through the son and experientially through the spirit. So again, type A personality, this is where I'm going. I want you to kind of see the, the, the flow here. The rest of what we're gonna look at in chapter four, um, he's gonna break this down. We're gonna see how we become the children of God and we experience this through the spirit, but we know this or we understand this in a legal sense through the son. So we're gonna start with legally through the son. Look at verse four. It says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are God's children now, legally, in a forensic sense. Imagine a courtroom scenario, that we are legally the sons of God now. Jesus redeemed us from this curse, meaning there was a price that was paid. He bought us at the cost of his own life. And so we are legally the sons of God. We have been adopted in. And I want you to know the implications of being adopted in the ancient world is even more than it is now. Adoption is a beautiful gospel picture today in our culture. I love hearing stories of adoption. Um, I hope that our church is full of adoption stories. And yet, like, it's still as beautiful as it is. It's even more beautiful when you consider the context of the ancient world. That for someone to be adopted in the ancient world at the time of this writing, 
This means that the child would take on the name of the father. And to take on the name of the father means that that father now took on all of the debt. So any kind of financial debt, any kind of legal trouble, anything that that child owed, the father in adopting that child would say, I have all of it. Put it on me. And isn't that the gospel? That all of our record of debt that stood against us, God said, I'll take it on me. And so it was nailed to a cross. That he, in saying, Kevin, you're my adopted son, is saying, now I bear the name of God himself as my father. All of the rights and privileges of what it is to be a natural-born son, I now have as an adopted son. All of the inheritance to come, all of that, I am now a genuine heir of God, his son. This is insane. Like, this is mind-blowing to think that God would do that. That all of what I bring to the table is negative. (laughs) It's just awful. And he's like, I'll take it all and I'm actually gonna use you. I'm gonna redeem things and make this beautiful. I love you as a son. You're part of this family. Bear my name. Go tell the world who we are. That is incredible. That in this exchange, we not only have our sin taken from us, it's paid for, it's been redeemed, but we're also given the son, as in Jesus the son, his rights and his privileges have been given to us. And don't forget, if we go back to verse 26, we said this kind of has to start this whole theme for us. So for through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. You are sons. That does not say you are becoming sons, as you are. This is decided. It is done. Jesus died, last word saying what? It is finished. It is done. The omniscient God, knowing all of our failure to come, every bit of it, it was done. It's been paid for. You are mine. This is the gospel. And now, so we are legally adopted through the Son. We are his, but now we move into the next part to see that we are experientially. We should experience sonship through the Spirit. So now look with me at verse six. It says, and because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Uh, It's incredible. That because we are legally his, because of what Jesus, the son of God, has done for us, God sends his spirit into us. The spirit living in us, dwelling amongst us. And his spirit helping us and crying out, Abba, Father. This idea, um, this, this Abba is Aramaic. And so this text would have been written in Greek and yet he chose to include this Aramaic. And now even as it's translated again into English, now it becomes still Aramaic, this, this expression. And why? Because, because we want to see the significance of this. But this is the term that Jesus would have used in referring to his father. And so now those who are adopted into the family because of Jesus would listen to the way that Jesus spoke of his father say, I have that right now too, that I can speak of him like that. Because Abba is this this reference to father that goes so much deeper than just father. I'm biologically or legally yours. But it's, it's like daddy, papa. It's this term of great endearment. It's to express passion. It's to express intimacy and presence. It's a trust in daddy. 
It's also this idea that if you're to cry out, Abba, Father, that you don't come before this father, like before a royal king when you have no real relationship with him and and you come with great humility and fear that like, oh, if I say this wrong or anything, but you come like a child running up and screaming, Daddy, there's no rehearsal necessary. We may come like in the prodigal son. We come with this scripted idea of like, I'm just gonna come in humility. I've, I've blown it. I've destroyed all of my inheritance. Like, dad is going to hate me, but I'm just gonna throw myself at his mercy and think like, you know what? I've been eating pig slop, so if I could just be your servant, like, can I have a place in your house as a servant? But then there's daddy on the porch watching because he never gave up. And he's just waiting for you. And he doesn't even wait for you to come up. He takes off running. He's undignified. Robes coming up. And he throws his arms around. He's like, no, you're my son. Go get a ring. Put it on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Put a robe around him. Like, you're my son. And you've been restored. You were dead, but you're alive. That is, no, don't come with a rehearsed prayer. You come to him as daddy. He loves you. And he wants to be with you. This is what we experience through the Spirit. But I, but I want to ask, do you actually feel like you are an heir? I know I have seasons in my life where I really question and wrestle with like, oh, I'm just not feeling it. Here's the thing, your feelings can be deceptive. Our thoughts inform our feelings, but often it gets out of whack and our feelings start to distort things and we start to question things and all this stuff. But I want to ask you, like, do you struggle? Do you have seasons of doubting? You're like, I don't, I don't really know that I experience sonship like he's talking about. Do I feel the spirit of God in me crying out, Abba, Father, you have this right to be here, to speak to him in this way and all these things. Do I experience this like that? So I want, to, I want to address that as we conclude. What about if you don't feel like that? What can I say to you pastorally to shepherd your heart in those feelings, in those moments? First, I want us to acknowledge something that may have been a tension for some in the room. That it's the use of sons, masculine, consistently throughout this, instead of children. In fact, some newer translations will translate this and uh, avoid using son and say children, They'll make it gender inclusive. Sons, daughters, all are included here. And yet, it actually says sons. And the translation that we use, the CSB, uses sons, and I like that. Because if you translate this as children or sons and daughters, then you actually lose how radical this is. This is beautiful. Because in the ancient world, a daughter had no inheritance. You had no legal standing. You had no right to be an heir. And yet here he is saying... I don't know, all are one in Christ, all are male or female, you're all sons. Meaning you all have a rightful place here. You have an inheritance. You all have legal standing before God. That is incredible, that is radical. So you're here, I feel that. Um, and the next one, like, how do, how do I know if I hear the Spirit? Like you say, the Spirit should be testifying within me of my sonship, that I have this right, and sometimes I just don't feel it. How do I actually hear the Spirit? Am I missing his voice? Am I out of step with him? What, what do I do to hear that? And, and I want to say, like, there's a tension. I hear this regularly as a pastor, as people are kind of commenting on different churches and stuff, which is so tragic to think that people view churches as in competition with each other. It's all the kingdom of God. Like, be about the kingdom. 
and be committed to the local church, but be about the kingdom of God. It is not just any one church. But there's often in that kind of competitive spirit, there's this this language of, well, that's a spirit-led church or that's a a word-led church and things like that. And they don't have to be at odds with each other. In fact, they're not. They're not. Um, There should not be a tension between spirit-led church and word-centered churches. Um, Here's the thing. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, pretty famous. It says, all scripture is inspired by God or some translations will stick true to like, if you you just make that more like a transliteration, like as as literal as you can take it, it's God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. That means that the entirety of the scriptures is God's very word. He breathed it out. He inspired it. He wrote it through human authors, but it is his very word given to us. It is inspired. So we can trust it all. It is from God. And so if that is true, now listen to this. Peter, speaking of the scriptures, he wrote this in 2 Peter 1, 21. He said, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so how did we get the scriptures? Men spoke from God. This is God's breathed word, his inspired word. And yet, how did that come about? Specifically, God the Spirit. He carried these men along. And so if you want to know how do I hear the voice of the Spirit, how do we manage that tension of spirit-led or word-centered church, all that stuff? No, no, like this is the sure voice of the Spirit of God. If you wanna know how you can hear and rightly discern in your heart, in your thoughts, is that the spirit leading me in that, communicating that to me? Is it in accord with this? Because this is the sure voice of God, the spirit. And so listen to it. Become familiar with the way he speaks to us. Hear him. Give this assurance. If that is true, that this is the word of God, the spirit testifying with us. He's the one who helps us to cry out, Abba, Father, to know of our sonship. If this is him speaking, then listen to him and be assured in that. That He says things like in John 3, 16, famously, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You can bank on that. The spirit of God who testifies of your sonship, he said that. So do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus, the one who was sent because of the love of God? He so loved this world, he sent his only son. And so anyone who believes, everyone who believes, this is the promise. You will not perish, you'll have everlasting life. And so listen to the spirit and be assured of that. Be assured by the Spirit when he spoke through the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 9, he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteousness, or he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And do you hear that? Do you hear the Spirit? Not just Pastor Kevin reading some scripture, but do you hear the voice of God the Spirit himself saying, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So do you feel filthy and undeserving? Confess your sin and know with assurance the promise of God. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why? Because he paid the price. He has legally brought you in so that understanding has to inform your feelings, your experience. you hear the spirit hear the word 
you can trust him. And then just kind of on a, a very practical level, um, when, I, when I counsel so many people wrestling with doubts and like, am I saved? Am I really a true believer and all this stuff? I just want to encourage you, like, the, the fact that you're wrestling with this seems to be a pretty good indicator that you're experiencing conviction and there's a care, there's a love for the Lord. And so you press into that. And I, I, I've, I've talked to so many people, and this is true of my story. Like, I don't know the moment that I became a Christian. And yet scripture teaches that we were not always Christians. We were dead in our sin and he brought us to life. And yet for many of us, like, I, don't, I don't know when that moment was of regeneration, when the spirit takes away this heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. That's many of our story. And that can create some doubt for some people, especially if you don't have this radical testimony of like, oh, I was like a drug addict and all this stuff. And like, some of you are like, no, I'm just like, I grew up in a family that loved the Lord. And like, I know I'm, I'm a dreadful sinner, but I don't have that radical story of just like this moment of crazy transformation. It's like, let's be honest with you, I don't remember the day I met my wife. She's way better at that stuff. And that can sound really offensive and hurtful, but you know what matters to her? That I love her now. That I'm true to her. That my confession, and I can, yes, I made these vows in our wedding and all this stuff, but the day I met her is not as important as who she is to me. And so I would ask you, what is your confession of Christ? Who is he to you? Maybe you don't remember the day that you became a believer, but today, who do you confess him to believe? to be. What do you believe about him now? As Jesus put the question, who do you say that I am? That is what matters. Some practical things, again, just if, if you're not feeling and experiencing that sonship, I would just ask you, are you living in light of the inheritance to come? Because if you're not, then you're probably not going to feel it. But if you live in light of the inheritance to come, living as one who knows with the certainty like all the riches of heaven are mine in Christ, well, man, <laughs> like you've, you've heard the stories of, of people who are just like broke, absolutely broke, and then they find out that this like long-lost uncle was a multimillionaire, and there's an inheritance coming, but it's, it's, got, a, it's got a timeline on it. Like you don't get it today. And you go from absolutely broke to like, I know, like, I'm going to be a millionaire. Have you heard these stories? They're frequent. But do you imagine being that broke person living on the street knowing in just a few days when all those papers get signed, I'm going to be a millionaire? How does it change the way that person lives on the street? Radically. And that's this life. And it will change the way in view of all of the crazy circumstances, if I know the inheritance that I have, it's going to change the way that I live in all of this insanity because I'm just an exile here, but my home is sure to come. Oh, think about your week. What are the highs? What are the, what are the goals? What are the pursuits of your week? What is it that you're living for? Well, if it's not in line with what it is to be an heir of this, of this glorious God that we know and has adopted us, then it's going to make sense that you don't experience it in such a way that says, I am a son. So consider what are your ambitions? What are you aspiring to? Does it align with the fact that you have been made a son of God? And then also, so deeply convicting to me, and I think all of us probably in this culture, of distraction, how there's just 
always something in my pocket that I can go look at and be entertained forever. You know, when God speaks, sometimes it's this loud voice, like thunder. People think at Jesus' baptism, like, thundering out here, what's going on? But often, it's like Elijah in a cave. And there's a windstorm, and there's an earthquake, and fire, and all this stuff, and each time he's like, nope, not the voice of God. But then there's this still small voice, this whisper that breaks through, and he comes out with confidence. That is the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord that, as the Psalms say, shatter the cedars. And yet, the voice of the Lord that gently whispers into our heart. But if we're just constantly distracted and filling life with things, just clutter in any way, then maybe you need to make some space to actually hear God. Can you be okay with sitting in the quiet for a while? Which is terrifying to us. Go try it. Put a timer on your phone. Five minutes, and then walk away from it to where you'll hear it, but have no distractions. Just you. Sit there alone. Say, God, I want to talk to you. And just spend five minutes with him and see how much it will change things in the way that you experience your sonship. So to conclude, uh, bottom line, understand and experience your sonship in Christ. As both. Understand and experience your sonship in Christ. If we go back to the beginning, all those divisions, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all that stuff, because you're sons, all are one in Christ. It's legal, it's experiential, you're sons. And if you tie that all back now to that great call to unity, if you and I will live with such an understanding and experience of our sonship, then isn't that going to change all those divisions? All those divisions are driven by fear that I need to come out on top, or I need to hold to power, or I need to prove myself. All the things that lead to division are all rooted in fear. And if I know the inheritance that I have as an heir of Christ, as a son of God, all those things that create division, I'm no longer scared. And suddenly I can embrace you, and we can be one in Christ. We can love each other. So beloved, let us love one another. Can you pray with me? Father, thank you for the way in which you work in our lives. Uh, the way that you work in history to see your plan come about to redeem us. Um, that legally you sent your son and he paid the price, the cost of our sin, our consequence, to appease your justice, your wrath. Jesus died. And so we are legally yours. We have been bought. But then in your mercy, because you love us that much, you actually want intimacy with us. You sent us your spirit so that we can experience the sonship, that your spirit would testify with ours that we are sons and daughters, that we can know you and we can come with confidence and call you daddy. I thank you that you are so gracious and want us to come to you like children. I love you. We praise you. And give you all the glory in Jesus' name.